It's Monday, November 4th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, the one and only Jason Nauser. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. The news fairy showed up over the weekend. <laughs> it did. You and I were trading oh, messages man. on Sunday. McDonald's has a new CEO. Berkshire Hathaway has a record amount of cash. We're not going to start there. We're going to start here. The U.S. Department of Justice. That's always good news anytime you're a publicly traded company. The U.S. Department of Justice has teamed up with the Securities and Exchange Commission to investigate Under Armour's accounting practices. At issue is whether Under Armour moved sales from quarter to quarter to appear healthier than the company actually is. This is a criminal investigation, and shares of Under Armour are down 15% this morning. I'm a little surprised they're not down more. Um, e, well, not, not I, that it, it was trading at some sky high value. Yeah, I was going to say it's 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 been not that great of a time for Under Armour. Anyway, I think the funniest part, if you could say, there's a funny part about this, but it did strike me. I mean, if there's any veracity to these allegations whatsoever, I mean, they were doing this. <laughs> they were doing this to make their financials look better. And I mean, like, why not just go all out? Because we could argue, and I think you and I would probably fall on the same side of this argument. Their financials don't look so hot right now as it is. And if these are somewhat manufactured, then you have to start asking yourself. Well, I mean, if there's really a problem here, then why didn't they really just go whole hog, as they say, and just just do it up right? To that point, let's let's acknowledge, okay, that they management Under Armour management believes, and they said the word firmly, okay, they do believe firmly they've done nothing inappropriate, um, and that's what that's what they said in the call this morning. This is an investigation that's been going on for two and a half years, which I, I still am not quite sure what 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 takes so long. I mean, I. But you know, I mean, who knows? I mean, the length of the investigation makes me wonder a little bit. If this is something that that if if this is something that they did, if they, if they are, are seen to have have done something inappropriate, I mean, this is not fatal to the business, but it is just one more problem that they have to deal with at a time when they really don't need any more problems. By the way, they also. Issued their third quarter report, they which uh, came in better than expected, both in terms of profit and revenue, and nobody cares. No, nor, well, nor should nor they. should they, because how can we trust them, right? I mean, are those numbers that they're throwing out there are they a figment of our imagination or are they real? So you and I had uh, the same thought because once I started to read more about this story, it reminded me of years ago. When uh, there was a steroid scandal in Major League Baseball, and a list came out of players who either admitted or you know it was provable that they were using steroids, and there were some players on that list who were big guys who were hitting lots of home runs, that kind of thing. But there were also a few names on that list <laughs> that were kind of like Under Armour. It was like. A small second baseman who was batting 265 and had 11 home runs, and it's like, wait a minute, you took steroids <laughs> to get those numbers? Like, what? What would you have been without the steroids? That was one of the thoughts I had when I looked at it. I was like, wait a minute, if you're actually cooking the books, these are the numbers you're coming up with. Like, that was... come, come up with better numbers. Now, on the one hand. As an Under Armour shareholder, I like to think that anytime lawyers are involved and they are approving written statements and they are saying things like, we firmly believe we did it, you know, that there is veracity to that. On the other hand, 
the SEC is involved. And the SEC is a regulatory body that is not exactly swimming in money and resources. That's a very good so point. So I sort of feel like anytime the SEC is actually significantly involved in an investigation, I'm inclined to believe that at least the people inside that building believe this is worth our time because we don't have a lot of time or money or resources. You would figure. I mean, yeah, it's anytime you get the SEC involved with anything. I mean, you better pack a lunch because it is going to be it's going to be a while. And I think that, I mean, to your point, I mean, two and a half years does sound like a long time, but I mean. Clearly, they think they have something here, and so whatever it may have been, whatever may have been done. I mean, hopefully, this will will get more light shed on this as time goes on. There was very limited information they could release on the conference call, as, and that's understandable. I mean, it's an ongoing uh, investigation, and, and you know, listen, let's make sure. I mean, like, we can pile on Under Armour and make fun of them and everything, and that's fine. That's part of our job, and we have fun with that. This is not unique to them. We see companies go through these types of investigations often, more often than probably we'd like to. I mean, remember, it wasn't all that long ago, Markel Insurance was under investigation for some reserve issues regarding their Catco side of the business. That was a very small side of the business. But it's an investigation nonetheless, and that's not been resolved yet either. Um, they, believe it or not, firmly believe that they did nothing wrong, Chris. <laughs> so, um, I mean, again, I think we'll learn more about this as time goes on. I think it's important to recognize this is not something that would be fatal to the business, but it is a problem at a time when they don't need it. Now, to go to the actual results for the quarter, and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and trust that the numbers that they're releasing are actually the numbers, because again, they weren't that great to begin with, but they could have been. They could have been worse. Um, I think that. For Under Armour, you know, they're doing a very good job with this turnaround plan in achieving the goals for the most part that they're trying to achieve. The balance sheet is getting healthier, inventory levels are coming down, margins are improving. But they've got to figure out how to light a fire under those sales numbers because that's really the problem. That's the source of the problem. If they could figure out how to reaccelerate that sales growth, Man, we'd be we'd be singing a different tune today, I think, because right now this is still. I think we're three years into this, and they still cannot get those North American sales back in the right direction. They fell for four percent for this quarter, uh, direct to consumer. Again, not very impressive. Inventory, on the other hand, the inventory is down 23 percent. In in their case, that's a good thing, and and margins are improving, which means they're getting back to that. Premium product offering, as opposed to really just trying to appeal to all of the masses. So I think there are signs that they're doing some some good things, but man, oh man, we know what the headlines about today. McDonald's has a new CEO. Steve Easterbrook is out after four and a half years um, after admitting to a consensual relationship with an employee. Chris. Kemchinski is the new CEO. He's been uh, the president of McDonald's USA for the past couple of years, and uh, boy, this moved quickly. Um, I think you and I were chatting a little bit about this this morning. Uh, I, I'm not a McDonald's shareholder, but it struck me how quickly these announcements came. The the combination of Easterbrook is out. This is why. Here's the new CEO. Here's who's going to take Kimchinsky's uh, place, uh, and they, the board of directors at 
McDonald's. Maybe they've been working on this for weeks, if not months, but um, they really took care of business in this situation. Yeah, I mean, it, it didn't. It didn't sound like it was something that happened at just the snap of a finger, because I mean, there were board votes involved, and I mean, there were there were attorneys involved, and I think they were trying to you know, make this exit as clean as possible without um, trying to ruin everybody's lives in the process. I think the good thing for McDonald's is that Kimchinsky should be able to essentially pick up right where Easterbrook left off. Um, I mean, he's been there since 2015. Easterbrook has, I mean, and and I think that for the most part, he's he's done a very good job at, at reigniting um, what was a difficult situation there with McDonald's. Talk about challenges on the top line and getting those sales back in, in, in the right direction. I mean, that was really that was really a big problem for McDonald's back in 2015, 2014. And um, Don Thompson, who was the CEO before. Uh, Easterbrook, and he had been the COO. We thought he was the guy for the job, and just he didn't really have a solution there. But this, this Easterbrook's north star was that phrase he always uttered: "Progressive, modern burger company." You know, and I mean, in, in that, I don't know, man. That kind of brought McDonald's. It seems like in, into this new century uh, with a little bit of a different. Uh, Brand awareness, right? I mean, it was no longer just this fast food burger place, but a place where they offered a lot, a lot of other things. And and um, you look at the way the numbers have 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 worked out for them. I mean, this past quarter they just reported uh, U.S. comps up four point eight percent. Now traffic is still a bit of a problem, but by the same token, in the face of weak traffic, they still brought those 4.8% comps, which means they're realizing a little bit of something on the pricing side and continue to innovate on the menu side as well. So, you know, this is... This is a tough personal thing. I mean, I got you know that's they, he did what he did. It was something that was clearly against company policy. I admire the company for taking a, a, the stance that they take here. He seems like he's in agreement with it for the most part as well. It's always difficult to really understand exactly what went on here, but it. it you know, it is what it is, I guess. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what, if any, additional details come out about this because on the surface, this um, look, this may have been as simple as. You're the CEO, and therefore, every employee at this company reports up to you. So, a relationship, consensual, a consensual relationship with any employee is against our policies, and that's that. It may, it may just be as simple as that. Um, it does not, to this point anyway, it doesn't appear to be what we saw a few years back with at uh, HP with Mark Hurd, where. There was a relationship with a contractor, and there was there was money involved where where um, he was paying for her to go to yeah. different events and 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 that sort of thing. So there were there were corporate dollars involved as well. Um, Heard resurfaced um, at Oracle, and you know it'll be interesting to see where Steve Easterbrook goes from here. He has a non compete. Very smart of the board of directors <laughs> to just uh, they. I, I just stopped reading the non compete because it was. Basically, a list of every restaurant in America yeah. um, that has more than one. Um, but it'll be interesting to see in a couple of years if he does resurf- uh, resurface at another business. Because to your point, it's interesting because uh, you said um, Kemchensky has, you know, he's got the blueprint. Um, and in, I agree with you. In some ways, 
the new CEO has it easy because he's got this blueprint he can follow. And he appears to be his early communications to the McDonald's employees was essentially, no, no, we're on a path. I'm going to follow that path. I'm not looking to do anything new. From the standpoint of the stock, I think it's tougher for him. I think oh, it was, yeah. I think it was the reverse for Easterbrook. Easterbrook had it easy because under Don Thompson, this was a stagnant business and a very stagnant stock. So Easterbrook was able to come in. He spent a few months sort of listening, talking to a lot of different people, and then going from there. Um, the stock up more than 90% in the time that Easterbrook has been CEO. Yeah, I mean, it's a very good point there. Just want to remember is that, um, I mean, he yeah, Easterbrook came in at a time when McDonald's was in the doldrums, right? And so, executing his vision, uh, it only made sense to see the stock. I mean, the stock has essentially doubled over the last five years. He's done. He's done what he promised he would do in regard to returning value to shareholders. He's targeted twenty-five billion dollars for a three-year period ending in two thousand nineteen, um, and and he's at about twenty-two and a half billion between share repurchases and dividends. And so, my suspicion is Kimchinsky. I mean, I read where he had referred to Easterbrook as a mentor. I mean, I think they they worked very closely together. In the relationship, this made me think of immediately was that of Alan Mulally and Mark Fields at Ford, and it's it's important to remember because I mean, Mulally came in there at a time where Ford was just knocking at desperation's door, brought things back around, and everything was hunky dory. You figured when Mark Fields stepped in there. Um, he could just keep on executing because he'd been working so closely with Alan Mulally to begin with, and, and that is not—it's a lot easier said than done. And so I think that uh, for Mr. Kimchinsky, he's going to come in here thinking, "Okay, this is nice. At least I've got sort of an easy way to get this ball. I could just kind of keep this ball rolling as it is now." But it, you know, we're at a point where I mean, McDonald's is going to have to figure out that that next act, right? I mean, they're going—they're going to run into more competitive headwinds. Um, and and where you go from here, I mean, it's a big company. It's not like they can just keep on opening McDonald's because they pretty much saturated the market with McDonald's. Um, you know, it, it was neat to read in the call how um, Steve Easterbrook had, had spoken with so many uh, franchisees with the company and generational franchisees and trying to get an understanding of. Their history and where they feel like the company should be going. I mean, he really did seem to be interested um, in 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 learning more from the people who are actually really doing that work on a daily basis. My my suspicion is that uh, Mr. Kimchinsky will probably take that that information to heart because uh, I mean, listen, you know, it's it's you got to be in touch with the people. It's a restaurant; you're you're selling food to people. Um, but but yeah, I, I feel like he's he's at least. He's got a good entryway here, but I do not envy the task he has ahead because we're going to hold him to the standard of now. How is he going to make this stock double over the course of the next five years? You just reminded me of uh, the letter from a few months back that that independent board of franchisees sent to Easterbrook about <laughs> the, pre- the premium chicken sandwich. Yeah. How, how long do you think it's going to take before they're in touch with Kimchinsky? To basically say, okay, because the first quarterly conference call after they sent that letter, and it wasn't a particularly, to my memory, it wasn't a particularly pointed letter. It didn't have a lot of attitude attached to it or accusatory language. It was just, hey, look, this is what we want. This is why we want it. What are you, what are you going to do? And on the first quarterly conference call, Easterbrook was asked about it and basically said, yeah, no, we're not, I'm not talking about that. I'm not. And so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see if. They go public. If I'm sure, 
in the next week, they're going to be, at least have placed a phone call to the new CEO. I, yeah, I, I feel like that's a great opportunity, particularly where you see, I mean, Chick fil A obviously picking up a lot of market share in that space. I mean, the, the Popeyes, uh, the noise that Popeyes has created has been. I mean, I, I think pretty fascinating considering Popeyes isn't probably the biggest known franchise in the world. But, but I mean, even this past weekend, what was it? Deshaun Watson with the Houston Texans credited he credited the Popeyes spicy chicken sandwich for curing his eye, for healing his eye. Um, I mean, you need people singing your praises like that. And so I bet you that Mr. Kimchinsky would love to hear someone uh, talking about. You know their future chicken sandwich in such uh, in such accolades. And Chick Fil A is not public, but Popeyes is part of Restaurant Brands International. Yeah. And I believe the last quarter, Popeyes was the jewel of that crown. Oh, for, it, it for moved the needle. <laughs> uh, let's move on to Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, as is Warren Buffett's want, uh, they issue their quarterly report, close of business on Fridays. Third quarter profits came in higher than expected for Berkshire Hathaway. They operate more than 90 businesses. It's not like there was one particular division or business, for that matter, that was really moving the needle on this. And so, the headline we are stuck with, I shouldn't even put it as we're stuck with, the headline that we have been given is the increasing pile of cash that Berkshire Hathaway now has, which sits at $128 billion. Yep. And I was thinking this morning about how when Apple's cash hoard was fifty billion and then a hundred billion, the conversation around that business was, "Oh my gosh, look at all the cash they have! What are they going to do with that?" Here's Berkshire Hathaway; they got a hundred twenty-eight billion dollars. What are they going to do with it? Here's what we know: they're not going to overpay for something because yeah. Warren Buffett won't let that happen. So if they're not going to acquire something, what are they going to do with this cash? So I. I don't know. I mean, personally, I have a little bit of an opinion here. I mean, I know you're surprised to hear that. But I feel like it's time for Buffett to. I mean, he needs to, you know what, or get off the pot. And what I mean by that wow. is we've been talking a lot about a Berkshire Hathaway dividend. People have argued they should pay it, they shouldn't pay it. And Berkshire Hathaway continues to say they're not going to pay one because they feel like they can do more with their investment dollars than. You know, cash in the pocket of the investor, and that's fine. But clearly, you don't really feel like you have many avenues right now. Um, and, and it's you know, listen, it's not like you're going to be running up on a shortage of cash. Like you said, they've got ninety, a hundred businesses. I mean, they've they've got a lot of cash producing machines where they're not going to really be worried about capital from really any perspective whatsoever. And so I mean again, this is a big company and growing is going to become more and more difficult for them, particularly because it's not, you know, it's not a tech company, right? I mean this is a good cross section of just the the American economy. Um, and so book value was up six and a half percent from a year ago. That's nice. I mean I I, I do appreciate the, sh- the the fact that they continue to repurchase shares. And and I like the fact that they basically Eliminated that that twenty percent premium over book value stipulation, and now they can just do it whenever they feel like really it's a good you know a good value. And I'm not I'm not arguing with them about businesses and valuations either. I mean, I don't want them out there overpaying for something. I mean, unless of course it was for something like McCormick, Chris, because I mean McCormick that's just like a little dividend in your pantry. I mean, come on. But but really, it does feel like he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. And I think that this is an ideal time for him. Particularly with the way the stock has performed this year, 
Uh, and if you stretch it's it out over the long flat term, over the past twelve months, yeah. And I mean, the market obviously is 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 outperforming it by by a lot. You stretch that timeline out three, five, ten years, it becomes a little bit more of like a market matching type of a stock. I just think that the goodwill that shareholders would take from even just a modest dividend, because then that dividend can grow over time. I just feel like it's the right time in Berkshire Hathaway's life to start paying a dividend. I think shareholders would appreciate it. You think maybe instead of that, they just send a box of C's candy to all the shareholders? Uh, I mean, listen, it would be better than nothing, right? You can assign a dollar value to it, and most people love C's candy. The peanut brittle is top notch, as you know, Chris, top notch. And, and I say all of this, I am not a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder. I used to be a number of years back. I just decided that at some point or another, I had places where I felt like the money would be more productive. But, you know, hey, if they were paying a dividend, I might have left those shares alone, Chris. That cash hoard is only going up. So, three months from now, we're going to be talking about this as being what, 135, $140 billion? Something like that. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about on The Motley Fool, may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Let's all go to court. Let's go make some law now. Yeah, 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 some law. Hey, you lawyer guys, you don't know me and Johnny are watching you while we're high. That felt oh, really smooth. So in the pocket. Oh.